Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? Getting to know people and non-linear pathways. So if you listened to our last episode with Steve Pappas, you heard Steve and me talk about how critical it is for the financial well-being of organizations that leaders really get to know their people. People have fascinating stories. And sharing our stories and really being heard is part of what has people feel seen and feel and know that they belong. I'm often asked how I got to where I am today or how I got to be who I am today. And it's a very linear story. Part of my story starts in high school, which brings me to our guest for today. Sean Duffy and I went to high school together, actually junior high and high school together, or at least we attended the same school at the same time. But to say that we were together is quite a stretch. And Sean and I are going to talk about that a little bit. So Sean Duffy is a self-taught American abstract expressionist painter. He's got over 30 years of experience in creating hundreds of really beautiful and unique artwork pieces. He is an inventor and an entrepreneur, and he got his start. So talk about nonlinear. He got his start by pioneering the live stream sports video industry, creating the world's first streaming subscription for hockey rinks called rinkview.com. In the mid-1990s, Sean worked for the former, or in the former Soviet Union for Global One Russia and was involved in nuclear and biological weapons proliferation prevention. While living in Russia, he became friends with the Azerbaijani and slash Russian master artist Tahir Salahov. Am I close enough, Sean? Correct. All right. Awesome. It was through the encouragement and support of Tahir that Sean decided to pay attention to his creative spirit. Welcome to the show, Sean. Well, thank you very much, Janine. It's a really, it's a pleasure to be here with you. You are welcome. I am thrilled that we made this happen. So Sean and I were just chatting a little bit before we started recording. The last time that we were together in the same space... <laughs> was a little more than 40 years ago. It would have been 40 years last June, would have been our high school graduation. And at that point, Sean was an athlete. Were you the captain of the hockey team? But you were a hockey star. I was not a captain. 
we had a very good hockey program and it was very hard to make the team there. But I was groomed for hockey my whole life. I grew up with a great hockey star. My father, Jimmy Duffy, was a Boston College star hockey player, grew up in Cambridge, went to Ringe, was uh, heavily recruited. And he had a, an amazing career in hockey, not only playing, but he ended up refereeing for years to make you know, extra money for the family. He worked yeah. at the phone company. That's he, so uh, cool. I didn't know that. Coached, Yeah, he coached hockey at Framingham State for many years. So we had a rink in the backyard. My older brother was a star hockey player. And so, yeah, hockey was the game, baseball. And so we just played sports all the time. And at that time, like we were just talking about, still today, kind of not as much, at least it's more diverse athleticism was such a big value for students to have. And that was important to the educators at the time to get people in the school that could play a sport. I don't know why, to be honest with you. <laughs> we had an amazing athletic director and he was like an ex-Marine and he said, right. Talk like my Jack better. You know, he was amazed. <laughs> Duffy, you baseball, you throw the ball, you hit the ball. You catch the ball. <laughs> we never talked about math. He did teach me Pavlov's dog one day. All right. About conditioning. Yep. And that I found that fascinating. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> Tommy. But yes, I was an athlete. I was proud of my athleticism. I think a lot of people don't realize I had a severe injury playing hockey. Huh. And during high school, that I really... I that at all. Pretty much. Well, I kept playing. It happened my sophomore year and it really uh, kind of cut short my career. I severely broke my arm and my wrist in multiple places in practice one day. And it just never was the same. It really kind of took the love of the game a little bit out of my heart. Uh -huh. And I often say that's maybe God's way of making wanting me to be an artist because thankfully it was getting you right. into a different path a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And so that's maybe how I led into the art world. But I continued to play and I played a little bit in college, mostly on the JV team and played a lot afterwards. I played a little bit of quote unquote semi-pro hockey and it was a big part of my identity. Yeah. You're right. To be a hockey player. And I loved it. Most of my friends are hockey players and hockey's <laughs> ice hockey is really an, a fascinating group of people, produces an interesting group. So I guess bowling does the same thing, you know, whatever. <laughs> right, whatever your thing is. Yeah. yeah, whatever your thing is, you hang around the like kind of people. So scuba diving is the thing for me. And yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting group of people. Oh, I love diving. Yes, we're both diving. We're actually going to be going on a big trip to Hawaii in January. But I wish in high school, you stay on topic a little bit. I wish I had studied Russian better. Because I ended up doing having a career in Russia and working there and doing a lot of important government and commercial related work. And I was like the worst student in the class. I mean, I used to cheat off. I shouldn't say it's any cheap. I would study with who we had a Russian princess in our class. Do you remember Tatiana Urasov? I do remember Tatiana Urasov. Yes. And I shouldn't mention names really. But anyway, she was wonderful. <laughs> she was amazing. And so I, I, she would help me. Yeah. with Russian. But I wish I'd studied harder and I wish I'd done more art projects and done more acting. Yeah, I missed a lot of those opportunities. I think I was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show as uh, I don't know if you remember that. Somebody <laughs> has that photo. I'll, I'll find it. <laughs> what is your recollections of those days? What else do you remember, Janine? Yeah, um, so a lot of fog there for me, really, when right. 40 years ago. Of course there is. Thinking back, what were you doing 40 years ago? 
I mean, a lot of what I remember is impressions and sort of like your arts. It's very impressionistic in my brain. But part of my memories of high school are really connected to, thank goodness, when we were in high school and our high school, there was not a lot of bullying going on. There was a little. There was a little. Yeah. It was overlooked a lot. Right. It was more covert. It was less overt than often it is now. And we were in high school, certainly long before social media. And it was also very stratified. You had the kids in the super elite group of kids, and then you had lots of kids in the middle, and then you had some kids down at the bottom, which was mostly sort of stoners in my impressionistic recollection. There weren't very many of them, and they weren't very far out of the mainstream. But I have just very recently realized that I am still holding on to this idea. So this idea probably got carved in my brain, I don't know, seventh or eighth grade, that the kids that were in the uber popular crowd, which everyone wanted to be in, which everybody wanted to be, that's where everybody wanted to be. And tell the truth, that is the group that you were in at that time. And I was not. So they had to be smart, they had to be athletes, and they had to be pretty. And in high school, Sean, you were very pretty. I will post some photos in the show notes of, of Sean and me from high school. Sean is still an attractive man, but he, and he was very pretty in high school. So I long ago <laughs> left the idea of being an athlete. I rode crew in junior high and high school. I was all right. To really row crew well, that really needed to be what you did. And so I ran in the off season in order to be able to row, because even though people think rowing is about upper body strength, it's actually all in your legs. And so that was my sport. But it's pretty hard to continue <laughs> rowing after high school and or college. And so I'm not a natural born athlete. That's not part of my identity. So I left that a long time ago. I am also a human who, I don't know if you remember or not, Sean, but I've struggled with my weight my whole life. I was somewhat chubby kid and my weight has been up and down. I've been heavy and not my whole life. And so given our Western American view of what beauty is, I gave up on being beautiful a long time ago. So then the one thing that I had was that I'm smart. And I know I'm smart. And there have been a couple of things recently that challenged that for me. And so one of my mentors said to me, well, what would happen if you were smart? And immediately, the thing that came out of my mouth was I would be a waste of space. And after it came out of my mouth, I thought, holy shit, like that's quite a condemnation. And certainly on many levels, not really what I think, but I realized I am holding on to this idea of what it was to be popular when we were in junior high and high school. And actually talking about this is having me have an emotional reaction. And so when you and I started talking about getting together, this kid, me, who was, you know, sort of somewhere in the middle, lower part of middle of the stratification, and you who was one of the uber elite popular kids, I thought this could be really cool to have a conversation about 
some of that. And also, like, about how it was to be, quote unquote, popular when you were 12, 17, and then where your life has gone from there. Because when we are 12 and 17, we have these ideas of what our life is going to be and how much things matter. Gosh, things matter so much when we are that age. I followed everything you were saying, and you may have thought I was at the top of the... It's like almost like being famous. And then you talk to famous people like, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't want to, I hate fucking being famous. Nobody enjoys it. And I never thought it was. I was an insecure kid. I didn't even think I was pretty. I thought it was ugly. I looked at myself and I'd say, oh my God, I'm skinny. And so that's probably what most of the, this is the ironic part of the story. And I guess maybe it will be educational to some people. I think it's pretty, it isn't obvious to everyone, but everyone is deep down a little bit afraid that they're not going to fit in or be accepted. And it goes way back to our cave dwelling ancestors to build the community. I mean, it's social hierarchies are nothing new. We humans did not invent the social hierarchy. No, we did not. Watch our animal friends. That's right. It's been encoded in all of the flora and fauna of humanity. So this is almost like our brains playing a trick on ourselves to the ends, the ends of this trick that everyone plays on themselves. It's like you're an unwitting participant in harmonizing and somehow creating this sort of order that possibly is going to be harmonious or unofficial, yet it's chaotic. It's really, it's chaos. And it's mostly brain chemicals and hormones. And so now we're learning that there's learning differences in kids. They used to call them disorders. We have learning differences. I did. I never knew it till I was much older until my kids were learning about that. So I think we're doing the best. We've done the best we can with putting right. kids in a building while the parents can go live their life for eight hours and try to make a living. <laughs> but there's a lot of folks. I know folks who've done homeschooling. I don't know. I think there's mixed uh, success, just like in high school. It's a personal choice. When I think back in those times, and really, mostly, we all just wanted to be loved. We all wanted somebody to love us. And we got that from many of our teachers. And of course, most of us, I know, had good parents and but you could get love by being a good athlete, by scoring a goal. And you could get love by wearing the hot pants that week. And you could get love <laughs> if you get A on the test. Like, let's talk about, there's some kids that were so smart, but there was this one kid, I don't even want to say his name because this would be public, but you might even remember who he was, but he was a genius. And he looked like the classic absent-minded professor, totally. He went from third grade to seventh grade. He, came, he was in our seventh grade and he graduated from, I'm sorry, fourth grade to seventh grade. Oh, wow. And big, tall kid. I think I know who that was. Yeah. And he would do 25 math problems in the five minutes between the class. One time we had to memorize to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether well, it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows <laughs> of outrageous fortune. Look at you. Mr. Leet's class, I think, in English one. And we all had to memorize it. It took a week to try to, even, <laughs> and then you had to write it on the blackboard in perfect punctuation and spelling in old, <laughs> old spelling. English. Yes. And his name was close to mine. And so he was going after me. I said, are you ready to do your things? He said, oh no, I forgot to practice for it. And he grabbed my book of Hamlet and he, and he looked at it for five minutes and he handed it back to me. And when he, his turn to go up and do it, he was the only one that it was perfect. 
this guy was fascinating. So he ended up not being popular and he was considered different. So he was a genius. So you have to have the trifecta. I guess so. That way you have no vulnerability. Except you did. We so all here did. you were. You were the trifecta. You were the walking embodiment of the trifecta. And my wife's going to love this, by the way. Right? I know. I'm teasing you a little bit. And it was also then 40 years ago. So obviously, this is not a key part of your personality anymore, which is why I can say this easily with you. But you were the walking embodiment at that point of that trifecta. And you were also insecure. And you were also wanting to feel just accepted, which is ultimately what we all want. That's right. And seen for the value that I could bring to things. And we always look for that, but it was difficult because we're talking about the classic Greco-Roman classical education that the high school we went to was an exclusive school. It's considered the third best private school in the country right now, wow. believe it or not. Yeah. And it's... Uh, Which probably neither of us could get into anymore. No way. I mean, <laughs> and the price to go there is well, right. to measure it, but it's insane. But... I don't know what kind of students they're producing or what kind of athletes they're producing or models <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> but it's a different place. Schools have changed that curriculum. They've had to move up the timeline to more modern ideas, more relevant topics that are going to be relevant to people today, or we think. But we're talking about, and again, just in my artwork, the creation of mythology is a really big thing. And that's probably in schools and through other people, even going back to the Homer's Odyssey, the word of mouth, mythology is created. And this is where we create these myths. And John F. Kennedy, the myth of Kennedy, we lived through that myth. I mean, we weren't around when some of the myths that we live by, but that structure that was in place that propelled some of those ideas is gone now. And, and so there's a new and different, and hopefully it's better today. That's my hope. Yeah. And when that I would be a waste of space came out of my mouth, part of what was so shocking to me about that was that I don't care if people are pretty or athletic or smart. What I care is that they're good people and that they're interesting and that they're interested and that they're curious. And those are some of the things that I love and enjoy about myself. And so that we would be producing kids from high school who are good people, who are interested and tolerant and curious. And part of what I love about your journey from an athlete to an artist is that there must have been, and I want to now sort of shift a little and get into exploring that some, there must have been some real curiosity that got sparked in you. Because that's a big leap from a hockey player to an expressionist artist. And interestingly enough, it was sparked during that time in Cambridge. And with my friends, whom where I grew up, people, I was groomed to be the athlete and groomed to play sports and, and get a scholarship to college. And I had never seen original artwork, even though my grandfather was a painter. My mother's father was an artist, but he died very young. And his work was sold off and she didn't even have an example of one of his pieces, sadly. So that is tough, my poor mom. But she pushed me a little bit in that direction. And I had friends whose parents were deans of several houses at Harvard. 
And of Radcliffe. And of course, uh, <laughs> of Radcliffe, we knew some people there. And so, yeah, I mean, I would call my friend whose mom was a high level person at Radcliffe. I remember one time Julia Child answered the phone. You know, Hello. I'm like, hi, is uh, Tia there? But going into some of those people's homes and seeing that really was for me the moment. And later on, after I finished college, I went to Italy for a few weeks and I also had an amazing experience seeing all that. But yeah, and I also remember back to high school, we had an art history class from Mrs. Kaufman. I don't know if everyone had to take that, but she was a fine educator, very tough, very strict, very tough on me. But <laughs> <laughs> for whatever reason, she wasn't giving me an, any inches. Any passes. She, no, but the medieval history and art history, I found fascinating. And despite my probably terrible comments that she made, I enjoyed it and I found it interesting. And so those experiences really benefited me. It was, I then went off to college and, and luckily I'd taken Russian at BBNN for four years. And that helped later in my career when I went into business. And it was the things that lead to what happened. They're one bit at a time, little things just build up. So how did you get to Russia? Well, I worked at Sprint for some time as managing some of their international accounts, Siemens and Siemens Next Door and some other big ones like Coca-Cola's international divisions. And Global One was a joint venture between Sprint and Deutsche Telekom and France Telecom was the first international telecom company. And even just a little bit, had some experience in the space that I was in, which is telecommunications and data communications. And so I took it. I went over there and was basically ran the sales and marketing division for the local global and Russia department. And then I moved into more of a director role of the government services division where I started working. The commercial stuff was cool. It was like Coca-Cola, Caterpillar, Mary Kay Cosmetics, and they all, everyone was coming into Russia <laughs> in the right. mid-90s. And there was a lot of hope. And of course, what's happening now, you know, I didn't want to talk about it, but it was very disappointing because we thought it would take them 30 years to really realize democracy. And unfortunately, the opposite has happened. But at the time, there was a lot of hope for cooperation, and there was a real problem with the arms race and, and created all these horrible weapons that were just basically sitting there unattended and unwatched. So a lot of that stuff went missing, believe it or not, frighteningly enough. So there were several projects that I got to be involved in, many of them still classified, really can't talk about too much, but it was mostly just helping the Commonwealth of Independent States, the newly independent states, including Russia, to modernize its computer and telecommunications and data networking capabilities. The money mostly was funded from the U.S. and to help them to stabilize and to secure and to track and monitor all of their dangerous assets. So I was right into a few programs and it was really fun work, actually. I got to meet some really cool people and I felt good about what we were doing. But again, back to what changes your course. And I think about how it changed, realizing how unsafe the world really is and how there are at the time were 500 missing nuclear bombs and there was this one program called the partnership for proliferation prevention was where an american naval admiral would spend three months with a russian army commander to live with each other's families in each country and spend time with each other and talk about ways to deconstruct the the entire network that was in place to kill each other. And so I actually got to know these guys and I worked with them to help with some of the different projects they were doing. And I got to know them and I used to get to kind of go out to dinner and 
go drink vodka with these guys. And, <laughs> and this one general, we were having dinner and we're having vodka and talking. And I said, you know, I'm just curious. Like he was the general in charge of the nuclear war planet versus the United States. And they were buddies now. So we're out in Moscow having drinks, having fun, laughing, joking, like everything's going to be okay now because we're all working together. And it was a really, really, really great time. And it was, everybody had hope. But I asked this general, I said, so were you guys just going to wipe out the whole country or were you going to leave some places? Leave little pieces. He goes, Sean, uh, Sean, you're from Boston, yes? I said, yeah, yeah, Boston. He goes, well, we were going to spare Boston. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> I know. And we laughed like hell. We laughed like hell. And I had other crazy experiences over there. I could tell you running into most wanted people in bars that I'd like America's most wanted the next week. <laughs> I just saw him Tuesday night. Yeah. But part of what I love about, so this story is revelatory to me. I did not know that was going on. And well, it helped my artwork, but I won't interrupt. You can get back to how, because it made me realize how dangerous the world is. And anyway, go ahead and finish your thought. No, but, and I want to explore that. And part of what I love about this is that that's what often in the work that I do working with organizations, when we talk about really getting to know people and once we know somebody, it's like this, once you and I have quote unquote known each other for 46 years, right? But I now know you much better than I did an hour ago. And I hope sitting here today that you and I will stay in touch in a way that we never would have if this conversation hadn't happened. And so once we get to know people and know people's stories, it changes the relationship in such fundamental ways. When we're thinking about nuclear nonproliferation or whether we're thinking about what makes an organization healthy and thriving and financially stable, so much of it is about getting to know people and know their stories because then people feel connected. They feel like they belong. They're so much less likely to push a button and vaporize a nation. And they then understand like, all right, so you were late on that project and I actually know what's going on in your life. So I have an understanding of why you were late on that project. Not that we're not going to talk about the fact that you were late on that project, but I have a context in which to think about that. And so I love this through line. And let's go back. Before you go back, because you touched on good, because I worked my first job out of UVM was working for the phone company in New York City at New York Telephone, the Bell family, okay? The Bell family. And it was, my manager was uh, basically, he wasn't a rabbi, but he was, I don't know what they call it, like a lay rabbi. He was really involved in his synagogue and he lived on Long Island. And I had to sell stuff. It was New York City in the 80s. He didn't care anything about what I sold. Well, Sean, what are we doing? When are you going to get a girlfriend? <laughs> When are you going to stop going all the way? You... Five minutes later, again, he, he was really more interested in my life and the mentorship. But those days are gone. And it's a fundamental change in the way corporations treat people and the way people treat corporations. There's a disconnect now. I personally think that it has something to do with the way that we tax the multi-billionaires who are making millions and millions of dollars by selling corporations and then taking all the money for themselves. Because before John F. Kennedy, 
the minimal tax rate over, I think it was a million or five million. I'm not an expert in this, but it was something like 80%. And so corp people couldn't just sell the company. If you were the CEO of 9X or New York Telephone at the time, it didn't matter. If you got $200 million, well, you could only keep like 20% of it. And that's changed. And so now it's just become a very cutthroat and very, very, I think, callous workplace in the corporate world. Entrepreneurs who startups, that's a different animal. But I've been through it all. I've been in business. I've done so. It's a very, very hard place to get people to work together and to be successful. And I think you're exactly right. Keeping people, how do we do it now? With Everything's done online. That's difficult. But having real contact with the people you work with and trusting them and giving them the chance to succeed and not overpowering their life with your management needs. You know, <laughs> trust in the human being will get the job done. So that's always been my philosophy. I've managed people in companies and I let people do what they, what they want. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's get back. Here you are, you're in Russia. And then how is it that you ended up meeting your mentor? So Tahir Salahov, I rent an, his, an apartment from him when I first moved to Moscow. So I lived in his place for, I had his apartment for a few years there. Then I used to commute there for another couple of years. So I really spent almost five years going back and forth. But I lived there. Really and did you know who he was initially? I had no clue who he was. And I got his apartment at the time. Folks got the cash in on the apartments that the communists would give them. And he had a nice place. He lived in what was called the Dome Brezhnev, which is the home of Brezhnev, where Elena Brezhnev lived. And it was on the beautiful street called Kutuzovsky Prospect. He was a minister of culture at one point in the Soviet Union. So he was a very high up official. But he was also, his artwork is on the stamps in the country. He's in, he's in the Guggenheim. He's in the MoMA. He's in the Tretchikov Gallery. He's the real deal when it comes to doing it his whole life and has done some amazing, amazing work and not just painting. So anyway, I moved into his apartment. I set up my painting easel and I really didn't have much stuff. And he walks by, he's like, Sean, you know, Hadoznik, Hadashow. I was like, duh, I need some art supplies. He goes, no problem. He says, okay. And he wrote me this letter. I'm like, it's a nice letter. And he said, go down to the street and go to this lady and show her the letter. And I went down to this little tiny art store. You couldn't even, there was a hole in the wall. And I bring, walk up to the lady, said, hello. And I hand her the piece of paper and she reads it. And then she looks up at me and she's like in shock. She's like, Tahir Salahov? I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I just need some stuff. And she goes in the room. She gives me a big box of paint supplies, which I paid for. And then she asked if she could keep the letter. <laughs> so then I knew something was up right. at that point. I was like, wait a minute. I was like, why do you want to keep it? I was like, the Tahir Salahov. It's got his autograph on it. Uh -huh. I was like, no, I better not. <laughs> I have that letter. And it was a nice, nice letter. This American, young American who's come to live in Russia. And he uh, loves to paint. He's a wonderful painter. And so I bought a lot of art, I mean, supplies from her over the years. And, and we would paint together. And so we would come down and I'd have his wife would make us dinner. And we would talk about his life and art. He knew everybody. He had a little book with anybody who came into Russia before like the 89. They had to go through him. And he, because he was the, like the minister of culture. So he had these pictures with Michael Jackson, Arm and Hammer. He knew everybody, but I had no clue really. I just treated him like anybody else. And I think he liked that. And he loved that I was so into painting and he liked my artwork and he really became like a fan of it. In fact, I saw him again. I went to Azerbaijan with Martin in 2018, just before he died. He died about a year later. And we went to his home on the Caspian Sea. 
and we spent a week with him, went to his studio and watched him paint. And we had a wonderful, wonderful time. And, but he was like my wizard of Oz for me. He told me it's okay. And he's like, you're great. It's like, you're an awesome painter, Sean. He's like, you're an amazing. He compared, he thought I reminded him, a friend of his, he's like, Rauschenberg, who is dead now, but he was good friends with him. They spent a lot of time together. And he always said, I reminded him of him. High praise. And now I'm friends with his daughter, Aidan, and his grandson, who's also, they're both incredible artists. Yeah, and they're both really famous over there on their own. But Tayer was special. And it was, I think, just we had a wonderful time. We used to go out to his dacha together and just a lovely, lovely man. He grew up in Azerbaijan and his father was taken away and killed by Stalin when he was about six or seven years old. And he told me that story one night at dinner. And while we, and he said, and we were drinking this red wine, which was Stalin's favorite red wine. It was a Georgian, it was a blood red wine. And I've forgotten the name of it. You can look it up, just Google it. Stalin wasn't his real name, you know. His real name was, uh, and again, I can't remember, you can look it up. It was like Shashkavili or something like that. Joe Steele. Stalin means Steele. Uh. He was like a WWF name. I am <laughs> Joe Steele. That was really what it was. Wow. Anyway, so Tayyar was a high-level official, not for Stalin, but under uh, Brezhnev. And I was like, and he told me how his father had been killed by Stalin. Kidnapped and killed by Stalin for maybe, because somebody else said he said something bad about him. How could you even work for them? Like, I don't know if I could. And they killed my father. And he looked at me and said, Sean, you don't. And we do what we must to survive. He's such a beautiful person. And he made it, I'm sure, a difference culturally for Russia. He was just a, he was a giant. So for me to have had that opportunity, that alone was just the highlight of my art career, to have been able to, to paint with him and have his spirit with me. And so when you look back on your career as an artist, because at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, you are making your living as an artist. I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, trying. I mean, I'm not, not really that easy. good. It isn't. And I'm not good at going out and showing my work. I have Instagram and I have a gallery, Saatchi Gallery, that's online that does sells my work. And I've had some great sales. I've sold some really lovely pieces and I'm producing every day. So, but it is, it's a real, no way to make a living, to be honest with you, unless you are very lucky and you find the right niche. And I'm not into painting pretty pictures. I know there's pictures that, I, that everyone wants and likes and I could sell. Then it becomes a job. I'm looking for like some sort of magic to happen. And it goes back to the creation of mythology. Art and mythology are one thing. And so I'm, every day I'm sort of doing my mythology studies in my artwork and seeing what comes out and trying to tap into a bigger idea might help through somebody's eyes see something beautiful. Everybody's back again, and just to circle back to the idea of you thought I was the superstar and you didn't have the same sense of yourself, but yet we all are individuals. We all have our own consciousness. In fact, it almost seems like our, who's it, Alan Watts talks about our consciousness is a way for the universe to see itself. And so we're all just some sort of reflection of the universe and what else is there to do but enjoy it and be beautiful in your own way and feel beautiful and, and know you're beautiful. And so much of that idea of the popular kids is, in fact, a myth. You were not feeling popular, feeling secure, feeling like, hey, I'm Mr. Big Shot. I got it all going on. Yeah, Beck, I'm a loser, baby. You know, I mean, that, <laughs> really, I mean, I think that if anybody who doesn't 
really have doubts as a teenager is kidding themselves. And in point of fact, anybody who doesn't have doubts as an adult, I was talking with somebody just the other day who's the CEO of an organization I'm getting to work with, which is great and fun and fulfilling. And he was talking about his feelings of insecurity and like, what the hell am I doing running this $400 million company? And so many of us in some way or another are dealing with some level of imposter syndrome that I think is part of the human condition. And it is through the telling of our stories and getting to know each other as people that we get to poke through the myth and get to the heart of the human and the heart of humanity. I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, heal yourself, you'll heal the world. And one of my favorite philosophers who is an academic is Joseph Campbell, who is a Columbia religious scholar. His answer was follow your bliss. That's really the message of the end of the day of all religion and all spiritual philosophy is to follow your bliss. What is it that is going to, because you're here for a very short time. And so why wouldn't you follow your bliss? And Alan Watts, again, if you make money, your aim, you're going to spend your whole life doing something you hate doing, being around a bunch of assholes who you hate. Usually, unless you are figured out, you, know, you love acting and dancing, and then you find a way to make money. But if you make it your goal, you're most likely going to be unhappy. And the point of this, you'd rather have a short life full of doing great, fun things than have a long, miserable one. <laughs> Amen right? to that. Yes. So, Sean, if people are interested in checking out your art, where should they go? They can go to my website, which I don't update as much as I should, but I will be soon. It's seanduffy.com, S-H-A-U-N-D-U-F-F-Y.com. And I also have a commercial site through Saatchi Art, which is Saatchi, S-A-A-T-C-H-I-A-R-T, forward slash Sean Duffy, S-H-A-U-N-D-U-F-F-Y. And you can go to my page and where you'll see probably about 80 of my works there. My website may have 50 or 60 pieces and I make them so fast I can't get them up on my website. <laughs> and if anybody likes a piece or wants a commission, I'd love to do large pieces and I'm in it for the love. Awesome. Well, Sean, and all of those links will be in the show notes. So go check them out. It has been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janine. It has been really for made sharing my day your today. story. Well, it's a pleasure. And I know we're going to keep in touch. And I wish you the very best of luck with your podcast. And I can't wait to hear this one when it comes out and <laughs> I hear the rest. If I can ever be of service or do anything to assist, please never hesitate to call me. Wonderful. All right. I am Janine Hamner Holman. And this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams.
took a sign from greed to get a grip on my anxiety. So all out of learning in store, reading and training. Liberation, 